<clears throat> okay. Well, welcome to uh, session two of the progressive tradition, which will be concerned with um, Woodrow Wilson, never called Woody, Thomas Woodrow Wilson, and his times. Um, much as this morning, we do have a tape of uh, President Wilson, um, again giving two speeches, both of them recorded in New York in September 1912. And uh, before I turn the proceedings over to Liz Lundbeck, who will be moderating this session, um, I'll ask Don Albury to put that tape on, and you can read along as before.
The other thing, the additional duty, is the great task of protecting our people and our resources, and of keeping open to the whole people the doors of opportunity through which they must, generation by generation, pass, if they are to make conquests of their fortunes in health, in freedom, in peace, and in content. In the performance of this second great duty, we are face to face with questions of conservation and of development, questions of forest, water power, mines, waterways, of the building of an adequate budget for reading, of the opening of every highway and facility, and the setting up of every safeguard needed by a great, industrious, expanding nation. To look at the politics of the day from the viewpoint of the laboring man is not to suggest that there is one view proper to him, another to the employer, another to the capitalist, another to the professional man, but merely that the life of the country as a whole may be looked at from various points of view and yet be viewed as a whole. The whole business of politics is to bring parties together upon a platform of accommodation and common interest. In a political campaign, the voters are called upon to choose between parties and leaders. Parties and platforms and candidates should be frankly put under examination <clears throat> to see what they will yield us by way of problem. And there are a great many questions which the working man may legitimately ask and press until he gets a definite answer. The predictions of the leader of the new party are as alarming as the predictions of the various stand patterns. He declares that he is not troubled by the fact that a very large amount of money is taken out of the pocket of the general taxpayer and put into the pocket of particular classes of protected manufacturers, but that his concern is that so little of this money gets into the pocket of the laboring man and so large a proportion of it into the pockets of the employers. I have searched his program very thoroughly for an indication of what he expects to do in order to see to it that a larger proportion of this prize money gets into the pay envelope. And I have found only one suggestion. There is a plank in the program which speaks of establishing a minimum or a living wage for women workers. And I suppose that we may assume that the principle is, is, is not in the long run meant to be confined in its application to women only. <coughs> Perhaps we are justified in assuming that the third party looks forward to the general establishment by law of a minimum wage. It is very likely, I take it for granted, that if a minimum wage were established by law, the great majority of employers would take occasion to bring their wage scale as nearly as might be down to the level of that minimum. And it would be very awkward for the working man to resist that process successfully because it would be dangerous to strike against the authority of the federal government. Moreover, most of his employers, at any rate practically all of the most powerful of them, would be warned and protégés of that very government, which is the master of it all. For no part of this program can be discussed intelligently without remembering that monopoly, as handled by him, is not to be prevented, but accepted and regulated. When you have thought the whole thing out, therefore, you will find that the program of the new party legalizes monopoly and that necessity subordinates working men to them 
and to the plans made by the government both with regard to employment and with regard to wages. Take the thing as a whole, and it looks strangely like economic mastery over the very lives and fortunes of those who do the daily work of the nation. And all this under the overwhelming power and sovereignty of the national government. What most of us are fighting for is to break up this very partnership between big business and the government. Welcome everybody to the second session of our conference here. And this session is on Wilson, as you're probably aware, um, Woodrow Wilson and his Times. John Milton Cooper will be delivering a paper, and then we'll have four panelists commenting on the paper. I'll briefly introduce everybody now, so I won't have to do it in between speakers, and then we'll get underway. Um, John Cooper is a professor of history at um, the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He's the author of numerous books, among them The Warrior and the Priest and The Pivotal Decades, um, and he is coming out with um, another book shortly and working on yet another. So um, he will be speaking on Taken at the Flood, Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Our commentators then will go in alphabetical order. There's no other sort of hidden scheme behind this. Um, Dirk Hartog um, first is a professor of um, 1921 bicentennial professor in the history of law and liberty here. Um, he was formerly at the University of Wisconsin um, and is the author most recently of a fascinating book called Man and Wife in America, A History. Jackson Lears um, comes to us from Rutgers. He's a well-known cultural historian um, who's written widely but most recently published Fables of Abundance, A Cultural History of Advertising in America. Nell Painter is Edwards Professor of American History at Princeton, where she's been, what, maybe 15 years? Um, <laughs> author of many books, um, but particularly apt for today's conference is her um, sort of textbook, but also monographic work, Standing at Armageddon in the United States from 1877 to 1919, which aims at a synthetic view of the period and achieves it. Um, Henry Yu is recently of Princeton. Um, he's assistant professor of history at UCLA. Um, he wrote his dissertation here, and his book, Thinking About Orientals, Race, Modernity, and Asians in America, was not published in 1998, as the program says, but it will be published in November of 2000. Next month, hopefully. Yes. Next month. That is next month. Okay. Um, so I'll turn it over now to um, John Milton Cooper. It's uh, a real pleasure and uh, very meaningful for me to be here for several reasons. And I want to thank Sean very much and Judith for organizing an absolutely splendid conference. And this, these pens are, you know, what a touch, Sean. Uh, and he, he figured out which ones would be most applicable to each of us. And this one has got, uh, well, it's from 1916. It's got Wilson and his vice president, Thomas Riley Marshall, who is most famous for what this country needs is a really good five-cent cigar. And underneath is a motto. In fact, the, uh, the president yesterday appeared at that. Uh, the motto is America first. And in fact, that is a phrase that Wilson coined in April 1915. And I'm trying to remember, I think it was in early June 1915. 
his great adversary to be, well, it's the adversary then, but much greater adversary to be, Henry Cabot Lodge, coined the term United Nations. So we have an interesting role reversal there. This is meaningful to me uh, for two principal reasons. One is uh, I was interested in <clears throat> when John Murren talked this morning in introducing John Blum about uh, professors of 20th century history at elite universities who were going against the grain, who were liberals teaching to conservatives. And uh, he mentioned uh, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., uh, and he mentioned Eric Goldman. Exactly 40 years ago, I was one of those students. Actually, I was one of the small minority of Democrats uh, who was sitting in this very room when Eric Goldman was teaching to us. And he, he was awfully good. I mean, he, was, he was good at so many things, but he was awfully good at uh, teaching to conservatives. And he especially, uh, uh, especially uh, emphasized patrician reform. And I actually watched him convert or get some, uh, uh, get some of my classmates interested in, uh, in, in that. Uh, and I also, the other thing I remember, and I'm glad you're here, Arthur, because I especially wanted you to hear this. Uh, what, what Eric did was, he said, when the assignment came for Herbert Hoover in the Great Depression, he said, uh, if you're a Democrat by background, you have to read Herbert Hoover's memoirs. If you're a Republican by background, you have to read uh, Arthur Schlesinger's Crisis of the Old Order. Well, I complained to him mightily that that was unfair because I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd read Crisis of the Old Order already, but still I thought that was, that was darned unfair to us Democrats there in that. Uh, the other reason that I am moved to be here is that, um, and I was very pleased that uh, President Shapiro said something about Arthur Link uh, yesterday in introducing the President. Uh, for a number of years, 14, 15 years, I would make an annual visit, might even say pilgrimage here, for a meeting of the editorial advisory committee of the papers of Woodrow Wilson. And uh, I was told several people that uh, the sense of deja vu was even greater because we would always have a dinner on Friday night at Prospect. Uh, and then after our meeting in the morning on Saturday, uh, we would have lunch at Layers. So indeed, we're revisiting the same venues. For me, in many ways, though, the best part came after that because some of the members would go ahead and leave, but uh, those of us who came from some distance, especially Dick Leopold and I and uh, a few others, would stay around. And we'd have, would have a wonderful visit for the rest of the afternoon and the evening with Arthur and Margaret Link. And that was just very special for me. And then uh, the Links were really a, a second family to our daughter when she was an undergraduate here at Princeton and really uh, were just wonderful to her. So. Again, it's a real pleasure and a moving experience for me to be here. Recently, a fellow historian asked me whether I thought Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson could have played the political roles that they did if they'd been presidents in the 1880s. That was a nice way of posing the question of how much an occupant's performance in the White House uh, depends upon his, or someday, her uh, gifts, and how much on the circumstances surrounding the person's residency in, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Popularly, we usually put this in a more biting way. Do we get the presidents we deserve? Well, I think that question is really unanswerable uh, on either side. For example, I don't care what the sins of the 1960s were. I don't think this country deserved Richard Nixon as president. To say that strikes me as vengeful fantasy. Contrarywise, I don't care how great the stakes of the 1860s were. I think it takes an act of sublime self-righteousness to say that we deserved Abraham Lincoln as president. In fact, 
When I think of Lincoln as president, I simply cannot uh, help thinking of that great line of, um, from America the Beautiful by Catherine Lee Bates, God shed his grace on thee. God certainly, or whatever providence, shed grace on us in the 1860s. Still, I think there's an exception, perhaps, to this rule about asking about presidents we deserve. And I think this comes in the first 20 years of the century that just ended. We had three excellent presidents in those years. The claims of Roosevelt and Wilson to being labeled great or near great uh, are indisputable. But even the comparative loser of this period, William Howard Taft, was a man of superior ability, as he proved so amply in his post-presidential career. Likewise, despite his fumblings, I think Taft showed himself to be a man of considerable accomplishment while in the White House. So clearly, to have three such superior chief executives uh, at one time in a row, I think speaks to the times as well as to their personal gifts and their luck. This era was what some scholars, well, James McGregor, Burns, and I, uh, have called a second golden age of American politics. Consider the political environment, and I think this comes back to Dan Rogers' point this morning. Consider the political environment of, that, of those years between 1900 and 1920. There were exciting, high-minded movements to democratize and clean up the electoral processes, to extend and refine the powers of government. These flourished all over the country uh, at municipal and state levels. The Middle West in general and my adopted state of Wisconsin in particular spawned the most noteworthy and long-lasting of these reform movements. Coverage of important issues in the various media, particularly in books and magazines, proliferated in many different forms. Uh, these range from what we call muckraking, which was mentioned this morning, uh, to such incisive commentaries as John Blum mentioned, uh, Herbert Crowley's The Promise of American Life, the youthful Walter Lippmann's Drift and Mastery, and don't forget that magazine that they founded together in 1914, The New Republic. George Kennan's called that perhaps the greatest magazine that's ever been published in America. Uh, I think Kennan is right. I'd even take the perhaps out. Great social movements also abounded pushing for, with various success, women's suffrage, women's rights, birth control, social and racial justice. And the leaders of these movements included some formidable figures who've already been mentioned, Jane Addams, Margaret Sanger, W.B. Du Bois. In such a political and social environment, it's tempting to say that a president would have been hard put not to rise to some level of superior performance. Or if you want to put it more bluntly, great times make great leaders. Is that so? Is it possible to imagine that the, man, the men who occupied the White House in these uh, two decades could have fallen short of first-rate performance? Yes. Taft's example shows that this propitious environment was not enough to ensure a successful presidency. It also, also took great personal gifts and good fortune, which both of the giants of this era uh, did enjoy. Uh, Roosevelt's already been covered. He's not my subject today. He was very, very well covered this morning. I only want to make one comment by way of comparison with Wilson. I think Roosevelt had the tougher row to hoe. He became president when the state and local reform movements and the surrounding discussion, debate, and activism were all still in relative infancy. What's more, he was leading a conservative party that was enjoying electoral success by standing against populism, Bryanism, those earlier manifestations of reform or radicalism. In addition, if Roosevelt could have had his own preference, or had his druthers, as we say down south, if he could have had his druthers, he would have been delighted to make foreign affairs the major focus of his presidency. 
I think all of those factors made Roosevelt's accomplishments as a domestic reform president that much more, uh, much more remarkable. At the national level, he was really the Moses of progressivism. He was debarred from entering into the, into the country uh, of the promised land of fulfillment. But unlike the biblical Moses, he was still around to witness and to envy another leader's triumphs in this cause. Wilson, of course, was the conquering Joshua of progressivism. He came to the presidency when reform, the reform ferment and criticism had swelled to a flood tide. And indeed, in the words of Julius Caesar, he did seize this tide in the affairs of men and women and it led on to political fortune. Again, it's tempting to say that no person lucky enough to sit in the White House at this time could have failed to rack up great accomplishments. One might be tempted to blurt out, great times made him a great president. Again, is that so? Were Wilson's circumstances so propitious that he could simply ride the progressive flood tide to fortune? No, not really. He had a contradictory pair of difficulties to overcome. First, his party had languished in exile from executive and legislative power for the previous 16 years, which meant he couldn't draw upon a deep well of experience of government at the national level. Second, because of those peculiar circumstances of 1912, his party commanded a large majority in the House of Representatives, but Wilson was only a minority president. Remember, uh, he polled less than 42% of the popular vote. Either of those sets of difficulties, or some combination of them, could easily have spelled disaster for a less gifted leader. Well, forgive me, I've already done it this morning, but I'll make a pun, you know, a literary pun. In this case, it's a pun on the name of this university and Wilson's connection with it. I would characterize the two greatest gifts that he brought to the presidency with words that begin with the letter P. In fact, it's even worse than that, they begin with PR. The first P is preparation. The second P is Promethean. Between them, I think these two qualities, preparation, a preparation and a Promethean temperament, temperament, serve to account for much of Wilson's spectacular success as a domestic president. That's what I want to talk about today. I don't think those traits served him so well in foreign affairs, and I will mention that briefly at the end. Preparation really speaks to the ways in which Wilson's previous life and career fitted him for the presidency. Unquestionably. Much of his success in office owed to natural gifts. His intelligence, strength of character, self-possession, personal attractiveness, all served him well in politics, quite apart from any conscious preparation. Another trait for which he has been less celebrated was his personal one-on-one -on -one persuasiveness. One of the faculty's stars whom he lured to Princeton later recalled uh, his job interview with Wilson. Before five minutes had passed, I knew I was in the presence of a very great man. Had Woodrow Wilson asked me to go with him and work, with, work under him while he inaugurated a new university in Kamchatka or Senegambia, I would have said yes without further question. By the way, Mr. Katzenbach, that was Robert K. Root, uh, later dean and, and your friend and benefactor there. Well, here again, you might say with gifts like those, it didn't matter what kind of previous preparation Wilson brought to the presidency. There are interpreters who believe that Wilson was a successful leader in spite of his pre-political background. Those interpreters depict him as a natural leader whose long antecedent sojourn in academia was largely irrelevant to his later accomplishments. I don't buy that view. At the risk of tooting the horn of the profession of many of us in this room, let me say flat out 
that I think Wilson was a successful president, at least, at least in part, and not at all in spite of his previous academic career. I think that his academic career was central to this asset of preparation. This asset worked for him in two ways. First, some of the habits that Wilson formed as an academic proved enormously useful to him as a politician and president. One of these, I hope, is obvious, his experience as a teacher. In the classrooms at Bryn Mawr, at Wesleyan, and especially here at Princeton, Wilson excelled as a lecturer. I don't think he was quite so good as a seminar leader, but he was excellent as a lecturer. He was somebody who explained things to students in lucid, compelling ways. That experience really formed his model for the practice of public persuasion. No president in American history, I think, has done a better job of rational explanation of policies, programs, and events to the public. What he sought to provide was, in the root senses of the word, education. He wanted both to draw people forth from their ignorance and also draw forth from them their capacities for understanding and for making the right choices. Wilson could and did make emotional appeals, and sometimes with great effectiveness, but that wasn't his preferred approach. Remember, it wasn't this minister's son, grandson, nephew, and son-in-law who called the White House a bully pulpit. In fact, he rarely resorted to his great rival's uh, evangelical model of public persuasion. The second way in which his academic career contributed to his capacity for preparation was by developing reflection in him. Some of his associates, most notably his secretary Joe Tumulty and his confidant Colonel House, often groused about Wilson's solitary working habits, uh, his unwillingness to do a lot of gabbing with others uh, while he made decisions. They were judging Wilson by the usual standard of the politician, that is, a gregarious sort uh, who uh, gains knowledge through talking and listening to other people and likes doing that all the time. I think they fail to appreciate how useful Wilson's essentially professorial working habits were to him. I remember reading a fine book years ago called What It Means to Be a Politician. It was written by a sometime practitioner of that art, uh, Stimson Bullitt. Uh, and Bullitt argued that what most politicians lack, or lack greatly, are quiet times for reflection and getting their bearings. Wilson didn't have that problem. Moreover, thanks especially to Joe Tumulty's careful intelligence gathering and briefings, and I also, think, I also think thanks to Wilson's own uncanny feel for public sentiment, he usually managed to maintain a fine grasp of where the main currents of opinion in the country were running. Something else that Wilson uh, took from academic life, and I don't think this is sufficiently appreciated, and I think really ought to be appreciated more when we look at models for the strong presidency, is a genuinely collegial style of leadership. He first showed that style here at Princeton. Uh, as president of Princeton, he has displayed a keen awareness of what he didn't know, and he gladly delegated management of certain areas to others. This is particularly true in the sciences. There he made Henry B. Fine uh, his right-hand man and even a kind of co-president. In the White House, Wilson treated his cabinet officers like, get this, responsible adults. And he largely let them run their own, own departments. Now, this delegation could have some bad results. It certainly did when he let his southern secretaries, some of them, try to introduce racial segregation into the federal workplace. 
uh, and later when he allowed his postmaster general uh, and successive attorneys general to trample on civil liberties. But I'd say for the most part, the approach worked well. For a time, Wilson even shared responsibility in foreign affairs, at least while William Jennings Bryan was Secretary of State. He also relied on Bryan as his chief lobbyist in working with the Democrats on Capitol Hill during his first two years in office. Those were some of the general advantages that Wilson took from his academic career as a preparation for politics. The best evidence of this preparation came during those two first years in office. Before the inauguration, Wilson went on a personal retreat to Bermuda. He was going to think about where the administration was going, and he drew up a legislative program in advance. This was the first time a president-elect had ever done that. Perhaps Theodore Roosevelt would have if he'd ever been a president-elect. He did not have that luxury. Then, during his first two years at office, in office, at times when the legislative agenda showed signs of overload, or when the Democratic coalition seemed in danger of falling apart, he sought timely policy advice from Louis Brandeis. Wilson also acted like a schoolmaster in keeping Congress in session for nearly 18 months until all of his first major pieces of legislation had been passed. This, by the way, was the longest period that Congress had stayed in session up to that time, even during the Civil War. Besides those general advantages, Wilson brought something particular to politics from his academic career. As a political scientist, he'd really pursued just one question. How does power really work? Which is not quite the trite thing you might think. It's a little bit like, for him at that time, it was a little bit like uh, recognizing the emperor's new clothes. It was reading Walter Badgett here as an undergraduate that planted that question in his mind. Later, he also took uh, inspiration from Edmund Burke to ask how power should work. Moreover, from his early youth on, he was a confirmed small-D Democrat. That was unusual at that time, because it was fashionable among the better sort, North and South, to blame the ills of the Gilded Age on universal suffrage, especially when universal suffrage included immigrants and African Americans. Wilson also confessed, and I'm quoting him here, ever since I have been old enough to have political opinions of my own, I have been a Federalist, capital F Federalist. And by that he meant a Hamiltonian devotee of strong centralized government. With that perspective and those views, he was ideally prepared uh, to wield the levers of power, first in Trenton and then in Washington. I believe that there is no career in American history I'm tempted even to say in all human history that better vindicates the study of politics as a preparation for the practice of politics. No career that vindicates it better than Woodrow Wilson's. Thus far, I hope I have been arguing propositions that shouldn't be hard to accept. Wilson was an academic, uh, and he became a highly successful domestic president during his first term. Uh, it takes a stretch to divorce those two facts from each other. Now, let me get on to what may be some more controversial territory. I want to venture into this more problematic realm. This other P that I want to emphasize is much less easy to pin down and to correlate with political performance. This is Wilson's Promethean character. It may be a function of his vaunted self-control 
or that misleadingly stirred appearance. But Wilson's sheer boldness is, I think, one of his least appreciated traits. Uh, brought up caution this morning when we were talking about Theodore Roosevelt. Wilson was a far bolder leader most of the time than his great rival. Wilson took great risks. He seized opportunities. He pushed the political agenda much further than many people thought possible. That temperament served him well for the most part during his first term. Here's where I think the timing of his presidency was crucial. The flood tide status of reform sentiment created splendid chances for a leader who possessed perception and boldness in seizing them. And here I think the man of the moment really found each other. This was not a time for in, an incremental consensual approach. The Democrats' long absence from power and the Republicans' habitual practice of sneering at them as the, unor the organized incompetence, either CE or TS, of the country, uh, made it imperative for the Democrats to prove themselves in a big way. Their big majority in the House helped facilitate the practice of party government, which was another, uh, another subject on which Wilson was a leading theorist, and he worked mainly through the instrument of his party. Uh, something tends to be an unsung or rather unloved approach. Not everything went smoothly. The Democrats enjoyed a much smaller and more fractious majority in the Senate. But there, in the, with the senators, Wilson showed that he knew how to play hardball uh, with both uh, lobbyists and uh, party dissidents. Actually, I think his greatest feats of legislative leadership came at the end of his first term, in 1916, as he was gearing up for his reelection campaign. There are two factors also, the distraction of foreign affairs, uh, and the rapid ebbing of progressive sentiment, which had uh, sharply reduced that Democratic majority in the House. Those two factors made the environment look much less promising uh, after 1915. But rather than pull in his horns and try to appease doubters, Wilson plunged ahead with a second bold program of reform legislation. That program included aid to farmers, shipping regulation, an anti-child labor law, sharply graduated, raised and graduated income and inheritance taxes, and an eight-hour law for railroad workers. In addition, he nominated Brandeis to the Supreme Court and waged a hard-fought battle in the Senate to win Brandeis's confirmation. And remember, too, now, after 1915, Wilson no longer relied on help from Bryan. Bryan had resigned from the cabinet in disagreement with Wilson's policy toward Germany and the submarine. And in fact, Wilson had to fight the great commoner quite openly for control of the Democratic Party. At every juncture, Wilson chose the path of boldness, and his gambles paid off. Running this time in 1916 against a united Republican opposition, uh, and the Republicans, remember, indeed were the normal majority party, running against that, those odds, he became the first Democrat since Andrew Jackson to win a second consecutive term and in fact remains one of only four Democrats in all of American history to pull off that feat. This Promethean side to Wilson should have come as no surprise to people who had witnessed his career here since 1902. I disagree with those interpreters who have looked at the Princeton presidency in order to find some rather facile uh, predictive patterns for his performance in the White House. And I especially reject the notion that uh, Dean West here and Senator Henry Cabot Lodge later uh, played comparable roles in Wilson's career. 
But I do think the Princeton presidency offers a good foretaste of his political career when it comes to boldness. Remember, uh, Wilson was determined to transform Princeton into the, the nation's leading university and to make it a model for undergraduate education uh, and preparation for social and political leadership. As Dean Fine said, Wilson made Princeton. Some of his accomplishments came through very standard means. He raised money, uh, he built new facilities, he attracted faculty stars. But beyond those tried and true methods, he created the preceptorial system. This was an attempt to bridge the gap between faculty and students. And he hatched those two abortive attempts uh, for uh, trying to get, bridge that gap even further. Uh, or, as one admirer on the faculty said, his attempt to intellectualize the undergraduates. I think we're still, many of us are still trying that at our various, various schools. Those, of course, those abortive plans were the quad plan and the location of the graduate college. When he lost those fights, he told his brother-in-law, I do not want to stay on and administer a country club. In short, if Wilson could not reform, improve, strive, push forward, and attempt great things, he didn't think the game was worth the candle. I think what this says about him is he was not a president for all seasons. He needed challenging times in which to operate. It would be wrong to say that he was addicted to conflict. Uh, he could be friendly and cooperative. He certainly did appreciate the need for calm interludes and respites. But he did need forward motion, and he needed big goals. It was the irony of his career, the great irony of his career, that he found the boldest challenges of all where he least expected them. The most prophetic statement, as we all know, that he made about himself was a chance remark to a faculty colleague here just after his election as president. It would be an irony of fate if my administration had to deal chiefly with foreign affairs. There's another sentence, too, which I want to read, uh, quote to you also. All my preparation has been in domestic affairs. The irony of fate, as we know, began to overtake him from the first days of his presidency, especially when he had to deal with the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, he paid some attention to foreign affairs at the time of the Spanish-American War, and what comes as a surprise to a lot of us, certainly came as a surprise to me, was uh, he had flirted quite seriously with TR-style imperialism. Yet Wilson spoke correctly when he said that his preparation wasn't here. He hadn't studied and reflected about international affairs uh, in any way comparable uh, to what he had done with domestic politics and government. Instead, he had to educate himself about foreign affairs on the job under extremely trying circumstances. Uh, the Mexican Revolution turned out to be Uncle Remus's tar baby for him, uh, and his fumbling performances there weren't pretty at all. But I think Mexico did offer him some preparation for the even greater tribulations of dealing uh, with World War I. Wilson's dealings with the war between 1914 and 1917 uh, remain controversial. But I think Arthur Link got it right when he said that by the time of the 1916 election, Wilson was showing increasing insight and sure-footedness in his diplomatic dealings. I think he gave the best sign of this newfound confidence in dealing with the war when he showed his Promethean strain once more at the end of 1916 and beginning of 1917. This was when he sought to go to the heart of the matter of keeping the United States out of the war. He mounted a peace offensive aimed not only at ending this war through American mediation, 
but also at preventing future wars by erecting a structure of collective security in which he pledged American participation. The climax of this peace offensive came with his Peace Without Victory speech on January 22, 1917. It was there that he sketched out uh, his vision of a new world order. As we all know, Germany's decision to resume and expand submarine warfare derailed that initiative. Then Wilson chose the bold, again bold, and extremely risky uh, uh, path of attempting to use American belligerency uh, as a means to seek the same kind of peace. Finally, at the end of the war, he seized another seemingly Promethean opportunity by drafting the Covenant of the League of Nations and grafting it onto the peace treaty. This was the boldest, most defiant move that Wilson ever made. It also occasioned his greatest failure. Why Wilson failed with the League, and what were the consequences of those, that, that failure? These remain the subject of both scholarly debate and sometimes heated argument among policymakers and commentators. There are many explanations for his failure. Uh, his lack of preparation in his terms seems to have played a big role. He didn't have the same sureness of touch in dealing uh, with the more fluid uh, and extra-partisan environment that surrounded uh, foreign affairs. Timing played a big part, too. The progressive tide had steadily receded since 1914, and Wilson's own war policies at home and abroad had divided, alienated, and demoralized uh, many of his erstwhile followers. Especially after the Republicans won control of Congress in November 1918, uh, the political situation facing Wilson grew measurably less promising than it had been before. And then there was his health. Even before he suffered a massive stroke in October 1919, and by the way, that created the worst crisis by far of presidential disability in this country's history. Even before that stroke, it was evident that age, fatigue, and his underlying cardiovascular condition were diminishing his capacity for imaginative, creative, energetic leadership. The Promethean role requires the player to be in tip-top condition. Wilson wasn't. This whole business was sad and sour, and I think it borders on tragedy. The aftermath of the stroke undermined his best qualities and destroyed the balance of traits that had enabled him to play politics so brilliantly before. Let me close by simply reiterating what just about every Wilson scholar has said. This was a career of might have beens. The greatest one involves the League of Nations and the chance to build a structure of peace that might possibly have spared the world the catastrophic events of the 1930s and 1940s. Another might have been is what might have transpired if his peace initiative in 1917 could have gone forward and he could have erected the structure he envisioned on the firmer ground of mutual rapprochement. Still another is what he might have done if he had enjoyed another term as primarily a domestic and domestic progressive president. At all events, he certainly was a president who matched his times. Did we get the president we deserved in Woodrow Wilson? No, of course not. No more than we deserved uh, to get the president that we deserved Abraham Lincoln. Look around at his contemporaries on the world stage before and during World War I, and you can see how far this man exceeded America's and the world's deserts. Thank you.
I'm going to stand because I have a little bit of a cold, and I'm afraid if I sit, I <clears throat> my voice won't carry. Um, the central experience of doing history, I think, for all of us, is, is estrangement. The regular rediscovery and this sort of famous cliché that the past is a foreign country, that they do things differently there, and that worse yet, there are no easy highways to carry us from there to here. We, we study dead people, we speak with them only in our imaginations, and we know that they only can speak to us if we give them the words to do so. And yet, thanks to Sean, in this conference, we're asked to think about the continuing relevance or significance of a progressive tradition and of the continuing relevance of some of the central progressive actors. <clears throat> so here I comment on Woodrow Wilson and his times with an emphasis on the problem of his times, since I'm in no possible sense a Wilson scholar. But still, I'll also try and speak a bit about who he, who he was, what he stood for, his words, his ghostly presence, what he, Wilson, represents for us living at the beginning of the 21st century. A central, a starting point to that last question would be a bit of honesty about who we are and what we understand to be our times. In my case, I have to say that my Woodrow Wilson is decisively shaped both by my identity as a legal historian and probably more importantly by the intellectual culture of the 1960s and 1970s, the times in which I first encountered him as a student of history. For me, inescapably, Wilson is neither Promethean nor prepared nor any other P word. He has four things, too bad, too good. The too good are the good of his anti-monopoly and pro-labor speeches and of his identification with Louis Brandeis, which for a lot of reasons was an early hero for me. Um, but the other things that marked him for me then, that is back in the late 60s and early 70s, is first, here we have our first moment where a past is made to speak to a later present, his role is the shadow the eminence crise lying behind those who made and mobilized and tried to legitimate the Vietnam War, those young middle-aged men, McNamara, Bundy, etc., who took from Wilson the idea that there was a statesmanlike identity that could be separated from tough democratic politics, who believed, like him, in their entitlement to speak the public or the national or the international interest without having to engage in serious democratic politics. And second, he will always remain, in my mind, our most explicitly and openly racist modern president, a man whose civil service reforms are marked by the segregation of Washington, D.C. Now, obviously, these, th these four do not sum up a Promethean individual like Wilson. I don't mean to pretend for a moment that they do. But I have remained a captive of those original impressions, one result of which is that I've never made any moves towards becoming a Wilson scholar. <laughs> On the other hand, I do know that there are many progressivisms and many different and differing progressives, a point Dan Rogers made nearly two decades ago. If exploring a tradition in the way this conference is organized means finding people we like, then the progressives are full of people who I would want to know, have known. Journalists, activists, lawyers, settlement workers, philosophers. 
whose words and experiences speak to me and I think ought to speak to any of us who worry about democracy and about how to mobilize action in a huge society. People who thought seriously about the nature of civil life and who modeled an experimental approach to government and problem solving. Many of those people are rendered, recreated in Dan Rogers' new book, Atlantic Crossings. Others, usually taken from a more critical standpoint, come through in works by Linda Gordon and other feminist historians. All those progressives were, like Wilson, of their times, in the bounded sense of the phrase. It's hard, for example, for us to appreciate today the extent to which their common identities as progressives were formed by a deep revulsion to the work of the Supreme Court, commonly identified then as the Lochner Court in, by the sort of most infamous decision of the court at that time, infamous from the standpoint of the progressives. This was a crucial aspect of, the, um, of, of what Dan in his comment called the code that allowed progressives to recognize each other. A progressive identity often was defined by a sense of the urgency of returning power to the people or to the states, power that had been appropriated through the misuse of judicial power, which variously had become the slave of muddied interests or locked in unjustified conflict with the legislative branch of government or shaped by an archaic and unprogressive legal culture that was unequipped to deal with the problems of modern times. <clears throat> The sense that progress depended on the restraint of the courts is hard to recapture today. Even more, it is difficult to recapture the extent to which they, or many of them, understood themselves at war even with constitutionalism and constitutional law. Um, Charles Beard, for one, and here he's not really outside of the norm, once wrote that he believed the Constitution was, quote, the bulwark of every great national sin. And one result of their anti-judicial and sometimes anti-constitutional stance was a general blindness toward values of liberty and of civil rights. As David Bernstein, a neoconservative legal historian, has recently shown, few progressives saw much to worry about in Plessy v. Ferguson or the judicial legitimation of racial segregation. For them, Plessy represented a modestly and perhaps surprisingly progressive judicial decision an occasion in which the court legitimated a progressive legislation in its progressive task to recreate order, in this case through racial segregation, in the face of the chaos of, of contemporary life. A parenthetical note, just a, this shared understanding, of the, this sort of shared anti-judicial understanding, I think makes progressive lawyers a particularly interesting and as yet largely understudied group, that we understand how, how so many lawyers could sort of maintain their identity as progressives is a really interesting problem. Or to take another example of what makes it hard to understand them today. It may be equally hard for us to recapture the typically progressive desire to impose order on a messy and messily corrupted democratic polity by dividing and ordering and reconstructing the physical landscape as well as the polity. This is archetypally connected to the sort of rise of zoning in America. Um, that desire could move some towards experiment and novelty and towards engagement with so European social reform, as Rogers' work demonstrates. But for men like Wilson, typically men who had grown up in the elite mugwump culture of the 1870s and 1880s, order 
and the institutional and practical problems of how to order, in my reading, had a more conservative tinge. Framed by a deep discomfort with noise and immigrants and pluralist complexity and a confidence that they, as members of an educated and presumably incorruptible white male elite, had a distinctive, nearly exclusive purchase on the true public interest, on the reforms that the polity needed and ought to want. Now again, I should emphasize that the particular progressivism that I here identify with Wilson, again, was not the only progressivism. All those who identified as progressives may have been, as we all are, of their times and limited thereby. But some carried futures that I want to, you know, so that I regard as worthy, that I connect, that in, if we think of this as a tradition that we are connecting to, that I would want to connect with, while others were locked in the enterprise of restoring imagined pasts. As, as I was thinking about what to say here, I came across a wonderful quotation by John Dewey that sketches one version of the alternative that I guess I admire, while at the same time challenging the enterprise of looking um, to elsewhere to model the identities and dispositions we need to deal with the problems that face us. The quotation is from Dewey's Ethics, and it involves his response to, quote, the attempts by those in position of authority to confer good on others. History shows, Dewey begins, that benevolent despots have not succeeded, except when their actions have taken the indirect form of changing the conditions under which those live who are disadvantageously placed. The same principle holds of reformers and philanthropists when they try to do good to others in ways which leave passive those to be benefited. There is a moral tragedy inherent in efforts to further common good which prevents the result from being either good or common. Not good because it is at the expense of the active growth of those to be helped, and not common because they, these have no share in bringing the result about. The social welfare can be advanced only by means which elicit the positive interest and active energy of those to be benefited or improved. The traditional notion of the great man, of the hero, works harm. It encourages the idea that some leader is to show the way, others are to follow an imitation. It takes time to arouse minds from apathy and lethargy, to get them to think for themselves, to share in making plans, to take part in their execution. But without active cooperation, both in forming aims and in carrying them out, there is no possibility of a common good. Now, obviously, I'm making this quotation to make a critical point about Wilson and his place as a hero of this conference. And one response, I think it might be John Cooper's response to the implicit criticism, might be that Wilson did change the world, if not quite America's place in the world, and that he did impose new structures, new institutions, such as public service commissions in New Jersey, that produced a new future and a common good. And yet here, I guess I would say, that Wilson's, to me, Wilson's times ended decisively with the coming of the 1920s. That his world, including the world he imagined coming into being under his tutelage, lay shattered within a decade of the end of his presidency. America, New Jersey certainly, did not come a place where, I'm quoting from his 1912 campaign speech that's included with the materials for this conference, in which the people were ready to heed wise counsel, whether, it was given, whether or not it was given honestly or in their interests. 
Last year, I'll give a quick example of this. Well, while I was on leave, I began to read the decisions of the 1920s New Jersey courts, including local court decisions and the published reports of decisions made by commissions that dealt with public utility regulations and workmen's compensation claims. I've, I only went a little way in this project, but the one thing that's clear is that Wilson's world is not the world I'm reading, neither the world he lived in nor the world he imagined himself bringing into being. Wilson and the reforms he identified himself with are either mobilized for purposes radically opposed to those he imagined, that is to say subverted, or just plain ignored. A few examples. <clears throat> the commissions have become the plaything of parties. Meanwhile, litigants before them have learned to mobilize the language of rights claims. Everything is being appealed to the New Jersey court system. That archetypal progressive reform zoning is declared unconstitutional in 1922 by the New Jersey Supreme Court in a decision that is at the same time both Lochnerian in its invocation of sacred rights of property and contract and racially liberal in its clear understanding that the law should not be mobilized to impose and sanctify merely private prejudices. And yet that's not the end of the story. For by 1926, before the U.S. Supreme Court legitimates zoning in Euclid v. Ambler, New Jersey has passed a constitutional amendment allowing zoning. And even earlier, in the years between 1922 and 26, one finds more than 100 published cases, who knows how many more were actually brought, brought by individual property owners and developers, aggrieved by continuing local zoning decisions right while, it's, while the zoning itself is supposedly unconstitutional. Those property owners and developers nearly all win once they get to court, relying on the earlier decision of the New Jersey Supreme Court. But we need to wonder about the communities that happily and busily went on passing and enforcing zoning laws after the court had declared the practice unconstitutional. Were those local governments progressive creators of the public good, interested in the rational division of land uses in the region? Hardly. They sometimes brought progressive lawyers like Bettman from New York City and Cleveland to make their arguments before court and legislature. But they had found in zoning a source for local and decentralized power. They had found a form of security in the face of the radical gyrations of the New Jersey land markets. They had found ways to segregate themselves from chaos. They, those local communities and neighborhoods, were making zoning into something very different from what its progressive creators had imagined it would be. It was becoming the bedrock of local and localized politics, something that would become familiar to all Americans in post-World War II America. Meanwhile, in the courts, we also see hundreds of accident cases, particularly road accident cases shaped by the unprecedented crush of cars driven by men and women who have to be taught new rules of the road, even as they are killing men, women, and especially children who once thought they were entitled to play in the streets. There is a new world in the 1920s, and it's not one that Wilson could have imagined or one that he played much part in bringing into being. Wilson, in his anti-court mode, may once have written that, quote, the Constitution was not meant to hold the government back to the time of horses and wagons. But he never imagined what the new world of the automobile and the truck would demand of law and of the polity. So my ending is my beginning. Wilson, like all but a few individuals, those few whose ability to imagine and create futures make them the Lincolns, the Kings, the Du Boises, the Gandhis of our pantheon, is not, I don't think, the president we deserve. He's the president Americans happened to get between 1912 and 1920. It may be that they deserved him, whatever that means. We don't. 
But we do deserve a progressive tradition that speaks to our world and to the, to the difficulties we confront. Thank you. Jackson Lears will speak next. Well, I, I want to thank Sean and the other organizers of this conference for the, for the uh, invitation and for orchestrating things so smoothly. And I want to thank John Cooper for his eloquent defense of the much maligned man that Mencken referred to as the divine Woodrow. I want to apologize uh, to John as well for saying almost nothing about his paper uh, but moving the discussion in a slightly different direction. I want to apologize as well to all of you for taking you to church for a minute. We get a lot of junk mail in this business, you may have noticed. And sometimes it's actually interesting. I received the advertising brochure for the Atlas of American Religion uh, several weeks ago. It contained a color-coded map indicating the dominance of various religious denominations county by county in 1990. The South was a sea of yellow for the Baptists with a few streaks of pale green for the Methodists, except for a spot of bright teal in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, right around the town of Stanton, Woodrow Wilson's birthplace. Teal was for Presbyterians. Things haven't changed much, at least in that part of the world, since Woodrow Wilson's time. Wilson's Presbyterian moralism is proverbial. Historians, except of course John Cooper, <laughs> cite it frequently with reference to his personal failings, his refusal to compromise on the League of Nations, for example. And yet the same moralism animated, I would argue, his zeal for domestic reform. As John Blum effectively demonstrated several decades ago, Wilson's intense moral commitment was a double-edged sword. It energized but also narrowed his political vision and led eventually to its terminal rigidity. What I want to suggest today with lightning speed is that Wilson's moralism intense as it was in his particular case, was by no means idiosyncratic. Presbyterians, despite being marked with a different color in the Atlas of American Religion, were part of a broader Protestant tradition. The sociological cliché has some point. A Methodist is a Baptist who wears shoes. A Presbyterian is a Methodist who's been to college. All participated in the broad evangelical ethos, which powerfully undergirded progressive political culture in the years before World War I. Wilson was just a particularly schoolmasterish version of it. But whether they were standing at Armageddon and battling for the Lord or teaching other countries to elect good men, progressive political leaders spoke the language of Protestant Christianity. Most other Americans did too, as Professor Blum pointed out this morning. The question, though, just as it was in the antebellum years, 
when the evangelical ethos was first spreading across the country is how did particular groups of Americans interpret and act on this common moral language. And for the people who considered themselves progressives, Protestant moralism reinforced their capacity to resurrect the old rhetoric of lowercase Republican virtue, which shaped the key concept at the heart of the progressive tradition, the idea of a common weal, a public good that transcended the Hobbesian war of all against all that is the essence of laissez-faire capitalism. Without the idea of public good, the progressives might never have begun to suspect that Wall Street and Washington represented different constituencies, a hopelessly archaic suspicion we now know from contemporary perspectives. It's certainly true that the religious aspects of the progressive tradition can be exaggerated. Many progressive thinkers redefine the public good in the secular language of expertise, disinterested expertise. They were inspired, as Dan Rogers has recently and persuasively reminded us, they were inspired as much by emergent social democracy on the European plan as by residual republicanism. Nevertheless, the Christian core of most progressive thought is inescapable. What fired the reformers' enthusiasm was the social gospel idea of useful service to the community and the post-millennialist dream of building a kingdom of God on earth. The point I want to make is this. What was true for Wilson was true for progressive political culture as a whole. Protestant moralism was both inspiring and constraining. It energized the encompassing humanitarianism of Jane Addams, but also the Anglo-Saxon imperialism of Albert Beveridge. It fostered settlement houses and quixotic crusades for investment opportunities abroad, for prohibition and other forms of social purity at home. This moralism cut progressives off, in many cases, not always, from the non-Protestant constituencies they ambivalently yearned to embrace as they groped toward a more intense experience of real life. And I think of Jane Addams' famous chapter in 20 Years at Hull House, the subjective necessity of social settlements in this connection. The objective necessity, the objective necessity, was fairly apparent to Jane Addams and everyone around her. What she wanted to emphasize in that chapter was the subjective necessity, the powerful need of privileged young women like herself to find something real, something purposeful to do with their lives. I am simply sickened and smothered with advantages, she once said in her early years.
So, Protestant parochialism coexisted comfortably with ethnocentrism and even sometimes with scientific racism. It's important to remember that eugenics was, for a while, a progressive reform. So, the central task for the progressive tradition in the 20th century, it seems to me, among many central tasks, has been this, to maintain the moral fervor, the kind of moral fervor that was derived from Protestant tradition, while at the same time embracing a more cosmopolitan vision of the American future. The sort of vision articulated so presciently by Randolph Bourne in his famous essay, Transnational America, published during the first Wilson administration in 1914. So this was the need, a vision that embraced transnational America, and the crisis of the Great Depression provided an opportunity. The New Deal introduced a more secular, pragmatic spirit, spirit into the discourse of reform, not to mention a fair number of Catholics and Jews into the reform ranks. And yet I would argue that pragmatism alone could not sustain the progressive tradition past the period of economic crisis. Nor could pragmatism alone promote the inclusion of all Americans in the democratic consensus. And here I depart from some of my colleagues and contemporaries who try uh, periodically uh, to conjure up the ghost of Deweyan pragmatism. I agree uh, with Richard Hofstadter's familiar assessment of Dewey that no one who writes that opaquely could possibly be thinking clearly. <laughs> with the exception, of course, of the glittering passage adduced by Dirk Hartog. <laughs> Still pretty awkward. <clears throat> so, pragmatism, in my judgment, alone couldn't do it. And the fuller participation of outsiders required more. The fuller participation of African Americans, for example, in the consensus awaited the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, which, true to the older progressive tradition, drank deeply from the springs of Protestant Christianity. Even the speeches of Lyndon Johnson contained biblical cadences. As the former schoolmaster declared war on poverty and proposed the establishment of a great society, another millennial dream as things turned out. The eclipse of the progressive tradition in the last third of the 20th century raises a fundamental question. Can a progressive tradition survive without a common public language, without a political culture that inspires commitment to some notion of commonweal beyond the mere scuffle of interest groups. And in an increasingly cosmopolitan society, 
Where would that common language come from? Protestant moralism alone will never suffice. Still, I'm enough of a universalist to believe that the language of social democracy can be ecumenical and eclectic and still coherent, maybe even inspiring. And yet the contemporary obstacles to such language are numerous and familiar. The timid, poll-driven majoritarianism of mass-mediated politics. The pervasiveness of psychobabble. But above all, the central conflict in any market democracy between maintaining investor confidence and promoting economic justice. Keynes recognized this and took it out of the realm of natural law and placed it into the realm of practical politics where it belongs, but it still remains, it seems to me, our fundamental conflict. We're stuck with capitalism, so how do we make it more just? Any politician who can square that circle and provide inspiration to boot surely deserves to be president. Whether he or she will show up anytime soon is a matter more open to question. Thank you. We'll hear from uh, Nell Painter. Good evening. Good afternoon. Uh, John Cooper and I uh, have become a kind of traveling circus, <laughs> uh, talking about Woodrow Wilson and uh, biography. Uh, we started our career in Stanton, Virginia, and uh, we were last seen in um, Lincoln, Nebraska. And we've talked a lot about Woodrow Wilson. Now. Uh, unlike my colleague Dirk Hartog, I did get drug into being a Wilson scholar, um, kind of by default, actually. I am a black woman who wrote about Woodrow Wilson, instant stardom. And, um, but the moment that I want to talk about right now, uh, 1919, um, is a moment in my book Standing at Armageddon in which Woodrow Wilson uh, kind of disappears. Uh, very often in uh, synthetic treatments of um, the late 19th and 20th centuries, when you get to the First World War, the camera tends to follow Woodrow Wilson. So when Woodrow Wilson gets on the ship and goes over to Paris, the narrative gets on the ship and goes to Paris. I was more interested in what was going on back home. And uh, so I want to say a few words about, uh, a few Woodrow Wilson-less words about 1919 uh, as it comes from Standing in Armageddon. Standing in Armageddon, the United States, 1877-1919 is a book I published back in the 80s. <laughs> and its, um, its thesis is that what was going on um, at the bottom, primarily workers, uh, is uh, kind of uh, the uh, wellsprings 
of what would be called progressivism. And I treat progressivism not as an era, but as a chapter. And so it becomes, as some others have said today, kind of uh, the end of a long process of uh, ferment that's coming from the, from the from working people and, to a lesser extent, from farmers. Um, where Woodrow Wilson uh, first attracted me to the kind of work I'm doing now is his comment um, when the First World War broke out in the summer of 1914, and he felt that white civilization was thrown into peril. Uh, I am no longer working on Woodrow Wilson. I am now working on whiteness. So what I want to do here in my few minutes is go from non-Woodrow Wilson 1919 into uh, how I dealt with 1919 in Standing in Armageddon and then into the work I'm doing now on whiteness. Uh, the central theme of Standing in Armageddon is labor unrest and responses to labor unrest. And so it begins with a railroad strike of 1877, a high point with the great upheaval of 1886, and then ending with the great unrest of 1919. Um, in, during the First World War, the uh, American Federation of Labor enjoyed enormous growth. And so uh, in 1917, the Federation added 650,000 members. In 1980, it added 355,000 workers. And in mid-1918, uh, there were more than two and three-quarters million unionized workers in AFL-affiliated unions. It's a phenomenal growth that repeated what had happened uh, with the Knights of Labor a generation earlier. Um, during the war, um, work, workers struck in record numbers in 1917 and 1918, culminating in a series of strikes in 1919. Um, one motive was uh, something called industrial democracy, which was a means of bringing more industry to the workplace. Uh, another was simply rising wages because uh, to um, um, respond to the cost of living, uh, soaring cost of living during the war. So um, you have all these strikes in 1919, and a realization uh, for among many Americans, um, such as the journalist William Allen White, that something was going to have to happen after the war because working people uh, had imbibed all this uh, rhetoric of making the world safe for democracy, and they had worked very hard, and there was going to be some kind of payback. And the response was this rave of strikes and red scares and bomb scares and the Palmer Raid. So taken all together, these years of unrest, uh, 1877, 1886, 1919, uh, inspired red scares and uh, ever more virulent red scares. And that meant uh, doing whatever was necessary to stop the reds. What was going on uh, was a wave of strikes and strikes in each of those years. The response was red scares. Uh, the reds, whether they were communists or communards or Bolsheviks in 1919, uh, each time we got red scares, we had not so much outbreaks of 
threats as labor organization and labor unrest. If, there, if red scares were simply correlated with reds, uh, the year of the great unrest would have been 1912, when socialists did so well in the polls and were so popular. Um, the great year of the red scare was 1919. So the question appears, why are red scares correlated with labor unrest? Uh, why red scares? Why not scares against, say, single taxers? Why not scares against women suffragists or prohibitionists? Why red scares? And here I get into what's uh, interesting to me now, uh, which is work on race, because I'm struck by the hysteria of red scares and the, the hysteria over race. Those of you who work on the 1950s, for instance, are quite familiar with the two themes of anti-communism, which is um, segregationist, um, racist, white supremacist, uh, and anti-communist. So you, you have these two together, that somehow what the bad thing the communists are going to do is mix the races. Um, in American history, uh, American history, of course, is not exceptional, and it shares with the history of the capitalist world a real concern about labor unions and about labor organization and about strikes. So red scares are not simply an American invention. But in the United States, there's another level that we get uh, of hysteria involved in red scares that I think has to do with race. And it has to do with the relationship between our labor history, which begins, we do not forget, in racialized slavery, in African slavery, and with a real kind of hysteria regarding workers, a kind of racialized hysteria. Um, two classic works that uh, are making this point are David Rodiger's uh, The Wages of Whiteness and Noel Ignatieff's How the Irish Became White, seeing the link between race and class in terms of whiteness. So you've already heard uh, people speaking very eloquently about the need to reintroduce the question of race and racism into early 20th century progressivism. Uh, Gary Gerstle and Dirk Hartog have both done a very good job of that. Um, but we know less, even know less in terms of questions to ask about the relationship between whiteness, not non-whites, but whiteness and race and labor. Uh, Christine Stansel pointed to some of those links this morning when she talked about gender and race and uh, when she spoke of race suicide, Theodore Roosevelt's concerns about race suicide. Uh, something else we need to mention is, and that has come up, is that the people who are, um, were considered white in Woodrow Wilson's time and Theodore Roosevelt's time are not the same people as the people who were considered white after the Second World War and in our own time. Um, we have a beginning of work um, tracing that uh, migration of people into whiteness. Um, 
We know also that that was f facilitated by Americanization after the Sec First World War and um, by the Nazi atrocities in Europe. Um, however, that intellectual history complicates investigations of whiteness because the historians who write about race and about whiteness in our own generation or the generation before are embracing and manipulating and using a definition of whiteness which is the post-Second World War definition. And so it becomes quite difficult to find people willing to hold up all that ugly stuff uh, from the first part of the century in which we have investigations of non-whiteness that includes people who are now considered white. So the post-World War II intellectual history uh, complicates uh, history of whiteness because nowadays when we talk about whiteness we tend to talk about a very capacious kind of definition that really ends up being a kind of non-African-Americanness, uh, a non-blackness. Um, so uh, scholars uh, are often very reluctant to go back into a history in which they could be perhaps de-whited or perhaps embarrassed uh, for those, uh, the progressive um, forebears, in a sense, who had very nasty things to say about the people they then uh, thought of as uh, non-white. What I find uh, interesting and have not yet finished with is the class valence of whiteness, whether we define it as uh, it was defined early in the century, rather narrowly, people of English descent or perhaps North, Northern European descent, or whether we define it very widely as after the Second World War. In either case, uh, whiteness goes along with power. And to come back to 1919, we get the challenge of 1919 and the challenge of our own progressive era or our progressive era to be in combining the history of progressivism in labor organization and working people's power, a kind of Bolshevik, kind of red version of progressivism, with definitions of whiteness based on non-worker status. That is, we have not investigated how the privileges of whiteness must mute workers' power because working people have often been defined as not quite white, going back to the American history of a racialized, non-white, uh, originating workforce. Thank you. you as our final commentator. Thanks. So, thank you to Sean Wilentz and to the organizers of the conference and also to Professor Cooper for providing a wonderfully written paper. Um, I thought the imagery of water and of the peas and peas and peas and the water imagery that ties. I'd make a bathroom joke, but this is a high-tone <laughs> affair. Um, but I, it inspired me. I wrote this paper before I came out to Princeton from L.A. So the, the water imagery and the peas you'll also see in this paper. Professor Cooper has asked in his paper an interesting question of Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt. He asked whether Wilson and Roosevelt would have been his great presidents if they had been elected in the 1880s rather than the 1900s. 
Professor Cooper has described, just how serendipitous it was that Woodrow Wilson, a man prepared by academic life to think about how to govern, a man with outsized Promethean hopes for himself as a leader, how such a man came to be president at exactly the right moment to do such great things for everybody else. Professor Cooper's question is one that I will rephrase slightly in my short remarks, using an old chestnut about the role of individuals in the events of history. My question, asked centuries ago, I believe by Thomas Carlyle, is about whether great men make history or whether history makes great men. Perhaps another way of phrasing this question in relation to Woodrow Wilson and using water metaphors might be, was Woodrow Wilson a great leader who piloted the United States through turbulent waters or did merely being carried along on powerful currents make an ordinary navigator seem like a great admiral? It is less that I am disagreeing with Professor Cooper's description of Woodrow Wilson and his times, rather that there are insights to be gained in taking the opposite tack from Professor Cooper's journey from Wilson's domestic policy through to his foreign policy. By beginning my remarks with Wilson's foreign policy, I'd like to amplify some themes in Professor Cooper's paper, themes that he and indeed many of the other distinguished scholars in this room have written wonderfully about in more detail in other scholarly works on uh, President Wilson, works which I hope they don't mind me borrowing from today. The first issue that comes to mind in beginning with Wilson's foreign policy is just how unprepared for leadership Woodrow Wilson could be. It is almost universally agreed upon by most who study Wilson that he came to the presidency wholly unprepared for international relations. Wilson himself admitted, as Professor Cooper noted today, that he had not given foreign policy much thought before becoming president. In this sense, Wilson was the product of his times, of a class of elite educated Americans who had been groomed to lead the nation accustomed to being left alone. Isolationism, the idea that the United States should be left to its own devices, was a common rhetoric in Wilson's time. But we should be careful not to fall into the trap of believing the rhetoric of isolation at its word. America was, in fact, very plugged into the rest of the world in ways that elite politicians were studiously ignoring or, more properly, disdaining at that moment. Perhaps another way of describing this is to see the first two decades of the 20th century as the end of something rather than the beginning. For instance, we might see the period that followed Wilson's presidency, the era between 1924 and 1965, as the great aberration in U.S. history. During every other period in American history, constant migration to the U.S. was the rule. The four decades of immigration exclusion were, in fact, the great exception. Since immigration reforms took effect after 1965 and took effect around 1968, we have reawakened to a world of migration and movement, of new people coming and going, of money changing hands across national borders, of ideas and ideologies carried afar in books and in brains. The end of the 19th century was similar in many ways. Migrants traveled across the Atlantic and the Pacific, sending money back and forth. Immigrants making small fortunes in the U.S. built villas in southern Italy, mansions in southern China. America was on the cusp of becoming a truly global bazaar at that time as a market for labor, but eventually in later decades for the increasing products of mass production. It was, in other words, not that America was coming back to the world after a long sojourn in isolation, but rather that the world had been coming to America in droves, and these migrants had connected America to the rest of the world in ways that those in charge really hadn't figured out. 
It was less that American leaders were ignorant about the world outside their borders, but more that they were fearful of acknowledging the degree to which the whole wide world had already been within their borders. Nativism, socialism, trade unions, class warfare, the threat of radical insurgency, these were all domestic developments hinging upon the global movement of human bodies that had transformed the United States. In Professor Painter's evocative book title, taken from the Roosevelt clip we heard, Americans at the turn of the century felt that they were standing at Armageddon. And people's sense of the coming of the end of the world very much had to do with all those people in the world coming to America. Isolationism, in other words, was a way of seeing yourself in a world that pretended you could be separate from the world. We all know, of course, that this was a delusion just as much in the year 1900 as it is in the year 2000. In particular, during this current moment in history, we have realized just how interdependent our world is. And historians are increasingly returning to a transnational, global perspective on the past because we have become so aware of the global nature of the present. It is certainly true that many American foreign policymakers at the turn of the last century were quite successful in their delusions about the world, both within their shores and without. And so Woodrow Wilson cannot be blamed for his lack of preparation for this important side of his job. It is also true that very few people, very few people around the world, let alone in America at the time, had any better idea of what to do. So you can't fault Wilson for his ignorance. The question is, what in his ignorance did Woodrow Wilson do? Wilson relied on what Professor Cooper has so trenchantly labeled his Promethean tendencies, his gargantuan desires to be important and to do important things. Wilson was a brilliant thinker, and ideas and principles well thought out were clearly the best map for political action. Thinking was important to him, and as Professor Cooper has shown, Wilson had long decades, in particular here at Princeton, to think about what to do before he became president. Wilson believed that ideas should shape history, an idea in itself that professional thinkers such as ourselves can't help agreeing with. Wilson was an academic that any academic could love. Perhaps that is why academics are some of the prominent and few among the current Americans who do love Woodrow Wilson, let alone think of him as occupying a place in the pantheon of great presidents. He put thought into action and justified the role that people like us have in being paid to think about things. But looking at Wilson's success or lack of success in foreign policy should make us pause to consider perhaps that the power of ideas was not as important as Wilson would have hoped. Wilson's delusion that America was morally superior to everyone else, that it should somehow be telling and teaching the rest of the world what to do, this was the fatal flaw behind the earnest nature of his principles. If Wilson was Prometheus, stealing fire and giving it to a world he considered lost in the darkness, then perhaps it is understandable that the rest of the world wanted at times to feed his liver to the vultures. As an example, Woodrow Wilson's uh, uh, Prometheus vulture. I, I, I got a little thing that says, they're going to laugh, but I can't. It's okay, you don't have to. As an example, Woodrow Wilson's anchoring belief that self-determination and legitimate government was a universal good applied to Europe with questionable but perhaps limited success foundered as coherent policy during his multiple interventions in Latin America. In Latin America and Mexico, at least, the powerful effects of American hemispheric interests provided an excuse for blowing Wilson into his chaotic course. But it was in Asia that Wilson's Promethean hope for the power of principles proved to be scuttled by the practical perversities of politics. There's seven Ps in that sentence, by the way. 
In other words, it was precisely Wilson's Promethean hopes that engendered resentment. The claim that America had a moral high ground and should be teaching other nations. Uh, by the way, I'm Canadian, so this might explain some of this. Nobody likes being taught like a schoolboy, especially when they suspect that what the teacher is teaching is not, in fact, in the students' best interests. Certainly not the leaders of Chile and Argentina when they rejected Wilson's grand ideas for a pan-American non-aggression theory, uh, treaty in 1916. People still talk about a Wilsonian style of diplomacy. Even today, those around the world who dislike the United States often associate that concept with Wilson's hope and belief in the righteousness of American causes. But if foreigners and domestic enemies saw America as less than a shining beacon in the dark, it was because they suspected that the safe passage through the shoals offered by Wilson might have been secretly self-serving. Soon after Wilson's death, the Washington Conference of National Powers in the Far East, which ended in the famous 553 balance of naval tonnage, proved a revealing culmination of Wilson's style of high-minded diplomacy. As historian Akira Ireye has shown, what to Wilson had long been planned as an idealistic multilateral consensus on peaceful coexistence in the Pacific world could seem suspiciously to many in Japan, China, and Great Britain as a continuation of the carving up of Asia into imperial spheres of influence. Wilson's regime saw the crumbling, the crumbling of a European imperial order that had mapped much of the 19th century. Wilson, the statesman, wanted to offer a new route, a new moral compass for the world. In an era which necessitated new strategies, Wilson's grand gestures might have seemed as good as any other, perhaps even loftier. But Wilson and the United States could not help applying universal ideas in ways that others construed as contradictory or self-serving. The nature of international diplomacy was changing, but it was not such a vacuum that Asian diplomats, for instance, were beyond abhorring the self-righteousness of Wilson's Anglo-Saxon superiority. What helped prolong international peace in the 1920s was stable business markets, not lofty ideals. The Great Depression of the 1930s was a world disaster that spawned militarism because it destroyed global market connections, not because internationalism as a moral outlook or ideal stopped being fashionable. The world of market relations was a world that Wilson was not particularly disposed to think about, at least not in high-minded terms. If the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century was becoming the world's premier bazaar, where everything could be had for money and money was everything, such a market morality was a bazaar world to the minister's son from Virginia. In conclusion, Woodrow Wilson's ideas were only as good as the applications for which they were needed. As president, he was the political inheritor of powerful reform movements, movements so overwhelming that Wilson could not resist them even if he had wanted to. In other words, Wilson's successful navigation of the treacherous waters of political turmoil were not steered merely by his lofty ideals, but born on the high tide of great social movements. Before becoming a politician, it certainly would not have seemed to most observers of those who had even ever heard of him that Wilson was the most obvious candidate to become the captain of progressive reform. His stewardship of Princeton University involved grand plans, but they were certainly not related to any populist or even remedial propensities. Professor Wilson was a man who did not have as much of an understanding of the foreigners surrounding him and America, nor in the end did he well understand the mass of the American people. 
despite all his years thinking about how to govern them. As president, Woodrow Wilson was captain of the ship, but he was a captain who knew little about the nature of his crew. He was Ahab so fixated on the great whale, on the importance of his own vision, that he hadn't realized just how motley a crew he led. It was to his great benefit that such a motley crew propelled him so far. Thus, social movements for change in the United States, driven by decades of internal migration and international immigration, these great tides of history, carried Wilson into historical significance. If there are lessons to be learned from the progressive period, and since we're trying to map out traditions, I guess I'll end with that, it is that a moral vision, as powerful and as lofty it is, as it is, must not be merely didactic. The U.S. can and should be the best example, the last best hope, but it should be about persuasiveness and not Promethean gifts. America cannot give things to other people who might not want them. In the midst of the current election, academics and pundits alike would do well to heed the negative consequences of a Promethean policy at home or abroad. When Wilson said that the U.S. would teach other nations to elect good men, this was his famous line from his Latin American policy, he fell into the trap of an overly righteous belief in the purity of Americans' own flame. It's perhaps still a question in the midst of this campaign season, in fact, whether Americans themselves have learned the lesson of how to elect good men. Thank you. our panelists. Um, I don't know that we're going to answer the question of whether or not Wilson was Promethean, or if he was, was that always a good thing, or was he inspired by Promethean vision? But I think there's a number of other questions on the table about what we might want to preserve of a progressive tradition in the United States. And in particular on this panel, I think two things have come up. Um, Dirk has reminded us of the progressive antipathy to democracy, and we've heard some of the about this this morning. Um, I'll just point out what Jackson pointed out about um, eugenics and the way that that, in a way that we're all familiar with, that sort of antipathy towards or, or reliance on experts can lead to things that we might not want to preserve, even if we um, want to preserve some parts of that progressive tradition. And the other is the question Jackson raised about, can, is it possible, possible to maintain the progressive moral fervor that we might admire, but do so in a cosmopolitan vein. Um, how much um, of the things that, for example, Gary Gerstle talked about this morning, how much of that is, is part of a progressive tradition and how much of it can be separated out so that we can have a progressive tradition we actually like and that doesn't lead to things like, for example, prohibition and a number of other movements we've talked about. But I'll throw the floor open now. We have about 15 minutes for questions if anyone would like to start. Yes, Kevin. Oh. And could people identify themselves, please? I'm Kevin Cruz. Uh, this is a, a question, I guess, really for Dirk and for Professor Cooper. Both of you mentioned uh, Louis Brandeis as a, as a strong symbol of uh, Wilson's progressivism. How do you then explain James Clark McReynolds? who's very different from Brandeis, but also an appointee. Explain who? I'm sorry? Uh, James Clark no, McReynolds. Yeah. Do you want to take that, Dirk, or you want me to? <laughs> Go. Um, 
this Achilles had uh, multiple heels, um, and one of them, Wilson could make some lousy appointments. He could make some good ones, but he could make some lousy ones. And um, his cabinet making in when he first came in, for he's plotted his legislative uh, program very much in advance. He knew where he wanted to go with that. Um, he also had a pretty good idea, I think, despite what Burleson later said to Ray Standard Baker about how to work with his party. But in some of his cabinet appointments, they were just plain strange. And uh, McReynolds was already in the Justice Department, yes. right? He was there. He'd gotten himself a reputation as a, a trust buster. Um, it, it, somehow, I, I, it, it, was, it was just, well, he seemed, okay, he was there, let's appoint him Attorney General. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid that that's one of several appointments that, that Wilson made that way. And then, well, what happened was, um, twice, the first two vacancies on the Supreme Court, Wilson actually <coughs> wanted to appoint, well, for, no, excuse me, let me back that up. Wilson actually wanted to appoint Brandeis Attorney General. Certain people, especially Colonel House, talked him out of it. Then when these first two Supreme Court vacancies came up, they again talked him out of it. He wanted to appoint Brandeis. Brandeis was the man he wanted. And finally, in 1916, for whatever reasons, I think maybe because he was sure enough of himself and knew where he wanted to go, he said, no, I'm going to do this. No, McReynolds was a disaster, and Wilson admitted it. I mean, that was the worst mistake. I don't really... I don't think he quite said what, what uh, Eisenhower said about Earl Warren, the worst mistake I ever made, but something to that effect he did say. I, mean, I don't have any – I can't add anything to this sort of the narrative, because I'm sure – but I think that the issue with, with McReynolds is always the, the complexity of the sort of how these judges arrayed themselves along the continuum of the police power. Um, and that's the – and um, the – the progressives railed against the court, but they were but they they were really locked into exactly the same set of categories, and they lived in the same sort of judicial or constitutional world, and so I think it was all a set of guesses about where people would place themselves along this continuum, and clearly Wilson guessed wrong with McReynolds. Well, and and from his point of view, Theodore Roosevelt, at least in his the first really important case, believed that he'd guessed terribly wrong with Holmes, you know, because Holmes voted against him on northern securities. And what, John, is it true he said, I could carve a better justice out of a banana, or is that apocryphal? Okay. Okay. Uh, Moody? How about Moody? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he was, I, I, I recalled him as being uh, possibly TR's favorite uh, appointment. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's this deep uncertainty about where the police power rests. That's, that's the sort of fault line for, for early 20th century jurisprudence. And they just, you know, and it's guessing where they're going to come out on that. That's, that's the uncertainty. Uh, Michael Lenton. Uh, Michael Lynn from the New America Foundation. Uh, it, both in this session and in the previous session, we heard uh, progressive imperialism ascribed implicitly to racism, to arrogance, to the uh, defective personalities of uh, Theodore Roosevelt or of Woodrow Wilson. I'd like to introduce 
three historical facts, which I think responsible historians should uh, keep before the public, uh, which I think uh, have to alter this characterization. The first is in the 1880s, the British invented steamships which could use seawater rather than fresh water. Hitherto, steamships had been confined to rivers. What this meant was that the age of sail was over and the future balance of global military power depended on having ocean-going steamships. That, in turn, depended on having coaling stations at key uh, ports around the world. The result was a uh, ruthless naval rivalry among the greatest military empires of the time, which were uh, Britain, uh, Imperial Germany, and the United States. Second fact, up until 1907, the largest navy in the Western Hemisphere was the British fleet, which was uh, stationed in the Caribbean. Uh, in order to counter the rising Imperial German threat in the North Sea, the British had a rapprochement with the United States and withdrew their fleet. This triggered a uh, decade of uh, a very bitter, uh, largely covert rivalry between Imperial Germany and the United States over military domination of Central America, Mexico, in the Caribbean. And the final fact, I think, that contests this idea that, uh, it, that America's military interventions in the Caribbean and Mexico were primarily a result of domestic or of uh, psychological or cultural factors is this. Almost all of Woodrow Wilson's military interventions, or the interventions of the Wilson administration, took place between 1914 and 1917. The United States sent the Marines to every single Caribbean island that was not under the control of the British Empire. Uh, now, this is not a historical mystery. Uh, Robert Lansing, the Secretary of War, the Wilson administration, in his memoirs published in 1930s, uh, said that this was his idea. The president went along with it, and the purpose of it was to counteract the attempt of German diplomats and uh, military attaches to turn these areas into German spheres of influence. Uh, and, and the same is true of Mexico. The Zimmerman telegram, as you may recall, promised uh, Mexico the regaining of Texas, California, and the Southwest if Mexico entered, uh, if, if in the event of a war with the United States but uh, uh, and uh, Germany. So I, I just think it's very misleading to ignore the geopolitical factors, and particularly the three-way rivalry between the United States, Imperial Germany, and Britain in discussing uh, Wilson's interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean. What answer? Um, actually, I don't think we should ignore those geopolitical realities at all. I, I, I'm, precisely my point was that we can understand his Latin American interventions as protection of hemispheric interests of the United States. Um, it was to merely point out that the loftier ideals that, that he would have proposed as the reasons why he was doing things in East Asia, in the Latin American and the Caribbean nations were, were not why. I mean, it's precisely these, I, I'm not sure it, where, where I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, it, was, it wasn't a psychological factor, in other words, that made Wilson send troops to Veracruz. It was, there was people telling him, you need to send troops to Veracruz or else X, Y, and Z will happen. Um, I'm just trying to point out the difference between the rhetoric of Wilson, in other words, and these interests that you're describing. Now, we can also make another argument that these interests of America as an imperial power, well, who's creating this as an interest? Whose idea was it to be in the Philippines? This is Theodore Roosevelt more than Wilson. And whose idea was it that we needed to put down, you know, Philippine insurgents um, who had been fighting against the Spanish, who had pushed much of the war against the Spanish in 1899, in 1900? Um, why did they have, the United States have to fight a two- or three-year, basically, 
rooting out all the guerrilla war, uh, guerrillas, uh, lessons learned from the American West applied to the Philippines. So there, you know, I'm, it's not that I actually quarrel with you that the United States as a policy was following in foreign policy. It's what it defined as its own imperial interest. It's just that Woodrow Wilson wasn't saying that. Let me, uh, yeah, thank you, Michael, for bringing in some uh, a little dose of international reality. Um, first of all, not all imperialists were progressives. Not all progressives were imperialists. Uh, I had one of my earliest clashes uh, with one of my own professors, in fact, at Columbia over that, William Luchtenberg. And I think he, he, yeah, you've got Theodore Roosevelt and Albert Beveridge, and you've got some very interesting connections in that case. But I think it's actually a very limited application that you can do between progressivism and imperialism. Racism is awfully interesting, too. Um, in a sense, everybody, all the whites are involved in this, are racists. In fact, uh, Christopher Lash, I think, I think this grew out, didn't Arthur, didn't this grow out of his senior thesis at, at Harvard, that wonderful article that he did, um, Anti-Imperialists and the Inequality of Man, I think it was one of Lash's very first uh, pieces. He talks about, in fact, in, in the imperialist-anti-imperialist debate at the end of the, of the Spanish-American War, the imperialists are actually the racial optimists. I mean, when William Howard Taft talks so condescendingly, of course, about little brown brother, nevertheless, he's calling the Filipino a brother, and what's more, he's assuming that little brown brother can be uplifted. If he's never going to be quite as good as us, eh, he can get pretty far up. On the other hand, the anti-imperialists especially, now, I, I wouldn't push this too far. I think, I think the, the Democrats were in opposition, uh, and... The knee-jerk reaction, of course, is, is to oppose. And, but I, they found, the Southern Democrats especially, found it very congenial with their, their hundred-proof racism uh, to oppose bringing any more non-whites in, into the American polity because their attitude is, we got enough trouble with the ones who are here already. They'll never be. They, all they can do is make things worse for us. So, you know, that it's, it's, those things come out in a very strange way. Now, finally, let's come around, come around to Mr. Wilson for a minute. Um, you know, Woodrow Wilson left, a, left Princeton under a cloud. And I'd like to report to his shade, uh, President Wilson, the cloud is still here because the cloud, the cloud of seeing him as this, this uh, ultra-uptight moralist and this man who is determined to impose these values on the world is wrong. It's simply wrong. First of all, parse a sentence, if you will, please, because this man was an extremely careful writer. In the war address, he said, the world must be made safe for democracy. That man was using passive voice very deliberately, very knowingly. He doesn't say we must wait make the world safe for democracy because he doesn't think we can, especially we Americans alone. That war address, in fact, I think, I think it is the greatest American presidential speech since Lincoln's second inaugural. It is, it's the sense of tragedy, the sense of limitation, the sense of, of, of the, the awful risk that he knows he's taking and a risk that may that may end badly, that he, or he may lose. We are only a single champion of the right. We've got to do the best we can uh, in this. By the way, self-determination was not his phrase. Lloyd George said self-determination. Wilson later took it up, used it in a very limited way. He never laid it down as a general principle for Europe, much less for the entire world. 
He also never said war to end all wars. That, again, was Lloyd George, although H.G. Wells, I think, had, had used the, fr the phrase earlier. So that uh, I think we have to be, be very careful with this. Um, his Latin American policy, those first two years, I have no brief for that. I mean, the, the, the best that can be said for it is, of course, he, the, the guy's fumbling around. He's, he's in a strange environment, one that he hasn't paid. He's paid almost no attention to. And remember, at his right hand, doing the same things, uh, is the greatest anti-imperialist of them all, political anti-imperialist, William Jennings Bryan. I mean, they're both doing this. So uh, again, I, I think we have to, uh, Wilson has huge warts, uh, many heels to this Achilles, as I said, this millipede Achilles, but uh, don't, don't place him in the wrong light. I mean, I, I think the, the cloud ought to part here sometime and ought to, ought to part among us, us academics, although uh, I must say academics, I think, uh, probably are, are the worst people to feel solidarity with one of our own. <laughs> um, I know there's more questions out there, but in the interest of preventing total conference burnout and allowing everybody a little break, I'm going to bring the session to a close. And I just ask you to join me in thanking our panelists and paper giver.